Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rapnolis. Mac and Me is often made fun of. It's one of those films that has a reputation for being silly, and it is a favorite of people who like to riff on movies. But despite this, there are people who enjoy this film non-ironically, and those people are generally ones who grew up with it. I worked in a video store for quite a number of years when I was younger, both renting and selling. And when we had Mac and Me in stock, it was not teenagers who were gonna make fun of it who were renting it or even buying it. It was parents who were trying to find a family-friendly film for their kids, or it was kids who time and again wanted to re-watch this silly little film about an alien. And it illustrates one of the most wonderful things about the creative endeavor. It's subjective. One person could look at something and think it's hilarious. Another person could look at the exact same thing and feel a deep sense of sorrow. Mac and Me is a crazy movie about an alien, so I'm not going to compare it to high art. But I'm also not going to say that it doesn't have its merits. There's a lot of very talented people in it and behind the camera, and there are a lot of people who really enjoy it. I guess all of this is preface, because what I'm trying to say is I enjoy Mac and Me. I try to watch it and laugh, but for some reason when I watch it, I find it charming. So on today's show, I will talk to you about Mac and Me. And we'll talk about the people in front of and behind the camera. I'll do my best to kind of tell you why I like it. Maybe I can get you to check it out again. And even if I don't, that's fine. Maybe you'll learn a little bit about a film that you'd love to make fun of. We have some fun information ahead of us. So without further ado, let's start the show. Mac and Me is a 1988 science fiction comedy. It was co-written by Steve Feek and Stuart Raffle. Raffle would also be the director of the film. We'll talk a little bit about the writers first. Steve Feek, who has quite a resume as a writer and as a producer. He worked on TV shows as varied as the original Let's Make a Deal, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, all the way up to the 1999 Beastmaster series in the 90s. He pretty much became a full-time producer of television shows, leading all the way up to 2005's reboot of Kojak. His writing partner on this endeavor would also go on to direct the film, Stuart Raffle. Raffle, who is UK-born, has had most of his career in the United States. He made his directorial debut in 1971, and over the decades he would work consistently, doing three or four movies a decade, sometimes more. And he has some films that you probably heard of, especially if you're a fan of 80s films, maybe even 90s films. He directed 
The Philadelphia Experiment, a cable favorite, the film The Ice Pirates, which my friends and I loved, and of course Mannequin 2 on the move. That led him right into the 90s where he probably had his biggest film, which was Passenger 57. Raffle had joined the film despite not having a script for this, which is why he's co-writing it with Steve Feek. According to Raffle, I was hired out of the blue, and the producer asked me to come down to the office. So I did, and he had a whole crew there. A whole crew on the payroll. It was amazing. He had the transportation captain, the camera department head, the AD, the production manager. He had everybody already hired, and I said, Well, what's the script? And he said, We don't have a script. I don't like the script. You have to write the script. You're going to have to write it quick, so prep the movie and write the script on the weekends. So you can imagine the pressure on Raffle. He is not only directing a movie that has a very seemingly complicated financing, but he also needs to write it and direct it at the same time. So it's good that he had some background in it, but also that he had a good writing partner. Now, I mentioned that the financing on the film seemed rather complicated, and that's because it seems kind of murky when you start to read about it online. The film is credited with three producers, Mark Damon, William B. Kerr, and R.J. Lewis. R.J. Lewis has quite a resume as a producer. To Retroist fans, you probably would know him as the producer of The Karate Kid, but he would go on to continue working, producing films like Ocean's Eleven and Vegas Vacation. Lewis, who did have a connection with McDonald's, he had worked on some advertising campaigns for McDonald's, and had a relationship with their charitable arm, Ronald McDonald House, is really the one who pushed Mac and Me. E.T. had been a giant hit when it came out, and years were going by, and another E.T. had not come out. And according to Lewis, It was time for another generation, so I came up with Mac and his family. He came up with this idea years before the film came out, and would tell anyone who would listen about what a great idea this was, especially its connection to McDonald's itself. Because what could be better for a film than to have advertising in the number one restaurant in the country? Every time you would go in there, you'd see Mac and Me. And even after it was done, they could continue to push the film onto people. This was before the 90s when Disney and McDonald's would partner together in what would become a very profitable arrangement. According to Lewis, McDonald's didn't actually directly finance the film, but the money did come from within the McDonald's family. You see, Lewis met with the president and CEO of Golden State Foods, a man named Jim Williams. And Golden State Foods is a food processor and distributor that supplied foods to McDonald's. And they would give the money, which feels like a company trying to help its biggest client out in this situation. Because if Mac and Me is a big hit, that's great for McDonald's. Plus, it's pretty exciting to be in the film industry. So the money was all there. And Lewis, of course, had a lot of experience. So now you can see why when Raffle arrived, everything was ready to go. Everything but a script. We will return after these messages. With every McDonald's Happy Meal, there's a character from the new Disney film Aladdin. There's Princess Jasmine and Aladdin, Jafar, the Sultan, and the Genie. In McDonald's Happy Meal boxes, of course. There are four toys to collect, a different one each week, at McDonald's. And now, back to our show. 
So a little bit about the plot of Mac and Me. First of all, Mac, while you could read into that as something akin to Big Mac from McDonald's or even just short for McDonald's, is actually an acronym and it stands for Mysterious Alien Creature. In the film, a NASA spacecraft has landed on a mysterious planet and it begins to suck up stuff around the planet in a vacuum that it will bring back to Earth. And one of the things it magically sucks up is a family of aliens. You see, in E.T., you only got the one extraterrestrial. In Mac and Me, you get a whole family. When the ship comes to Earth, they escape, and the youngest of these aliens gets separated from them and winds up with a family. The alien bonds with the youngest of that family, a wheelchair-bound boy named Eric, played ably by Jade Caligori, and wacky hijinks ensue. Much like E.T., the alien goes on the run with the government after him, and we're trying to figure out how are we going to reunite this family. There's some real drama in it, some fun chases, and a lot of product placement, which we'll talk a little bit about later. In the climax of the film, Eric actually gets injured, and that gives the aliens an opportunity to use their alien magic to help him. And he gets injured in an explosion. Now, anyone who has seen the movie knows that part. But in the Japanese version, there's actually a moment when a gun is discharged and strikes Eric in the chest, killing him. So it's not this sort of accidental death, but a gun that kills him. That felt a little bit too strong. So in the American version, it's the explosion. But in every version, he's revived by the aliens. Happy ending. Now a little bit about the cast of the film. Jade Caligori played Eric Cruz. Jade is probably best known for his work on Mac and Me, but he had some work on Kids Incorporated and Alien Nation. He has spina bifida in real life and was quite a wheelchair racer as a preteen. He is now an artist and photographer with his own studio living in Arizona. Christine Ebersol played Janet Cruz. Ebersol is an actress and singer. I remember her from her time on Saturday Night Live. She's worked consistently over the years. She was not the first choice for the film. Two other people were offered the role. Kim Bassinger and Angelica Houston. They both declined. Jonathan Ward played Michael Cruz. Ward was born in 1970, has quite an extensive television resume. He was in The New Adventures of Beans Baxter, which I loved. And he's in a great episode of The New Twilight Zone. Rounding out the cast, you had Lauren Stanley as Debbie, Tina Caspery as Courtney. If you've heard the name Tina Caspery before, you might be a big Married with Children's fan. She was originally cast as Kelly Bundy in that show, along with Hunter Carson, who was cast as Bud. It was the producers who thought they didn't really work in those roles, and Christina Applegate and David Faustino would eventually get the roles. Now, I'm assuming most people have seen this. Maybe one of the best parts in the film is a scene that actually has a McDonald's in it. They go into a McDonald's, and Ronald McDonald is in there, and he's dancing. That Ronald McDonald was played by Squire Friedel. He served in that role from 1985 to 1991. So if you are seeing commercials of McDonald's from that period, you're seeing Squire Friedel. He was also the voice of Ronald in McTreasure Island. Jennifer Aniston of Friends fame and Nikki Cox from Unhappily Ever After and Las Vegas make uncredited cameos in the film as extras. So watch closely if you want to do a little star spotting. Hi kids, it's me, Ronald McDonald, and I'm on the set of my very first motion picture ever. It's a movie called Mac and Me, and it stars my little friend from outer space here. His name is Mac, and I want to introduce you to him. Mac? Anybody seen Mac? 
Where'd he go? Aging Ronald McDonald. Well, listen, I've got to go now. You're wanted in makeup. <laughs> makeup? Me? <laughs> One of my favorite parts of Mac and Me is kind of all the product placement. While it's not a savory way to perhaps finance a film, maybe it takes away from its integrity, it makes for a great time capsule. And not only do they go into a McDonald's, but the family's house in this is filled with pretty wonderful packaging. They go to a supermarket. We get to see some more packaging there. And at one point, they actually go through a mall. So this is a great snapshot of mid to late 80s Southern California. And that alone would make the film worth watching. But I'm going to put another thing on there. The soundtrack. The film's soundtrack album would eventually get a release by Curb Records. But more importantly, the music in this film, which is excellent, was made by Alan Silvestri. Alan Anthony Silvestri was born in 1950, probably best known for his collaboration with Robert Zemeckis on the Back to the Future trilogy, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Forrest Gump. He also did music for the Avengers and Captain America. He is prolific and an amazing film composer. In 2014, Quartet Records released a limited edition version that had the complete score by Silvestri on it. Not easy to find, but luckily people have uploaded this music online. So if you go to YouTube, you can usually find most of the soundtrack there. Now, 1988 was not a bad year for films. And in the summer of 1988, there was a lot of pretty good films still available. We had Young Guns, Cocktail, Die Hard, which had been out for a couple of weeks, A Fish Called Wanda, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Coming to America, and Midnight Run. So it might not be a surprise to hear that Mac and Me didn't crack the top 10 the week it came out. It actually premiered in Hong Kong a week before its U.S. release. The film had a $13 million budget and would gross $6.42 million, which is unfortunate because... The film did have a profit-sharing arrangement with Ronald McDonald House, so it would have been nice for them to make some money right up front for their charity. As you might guess, the film was not well-received. If you go through and read old news archives, it is pretty well panned by everyone who saw it at the time. People, of course, compared it to E.T., which I don't think anybody would disagree with, and they had problems with just about everything in the film. It would go on to get nominated for four Raspberry Awards. My favorite would be Worst New Star in a Film, which was where Ronald McDonald was nominated. They were an average alien family living on their own planet. And we were an average family living on ours. He took my Coke, Mom. Come on, you guys. I don't have it. I didn't take it. I knew it! Accidents happen, and like us, they found themselves in a strange new neighborhood. I like it! Me too. Shh! We're communing with the Earth spirits. Welcome to California, bud. About a year later, the film came out on VHS, and that's where things changed. It would go on to cult status, and it was almost instant. We got a couple of copies of this in our video store where I worked, and I remember, at least for the first three or four months, they were constantly rented. Later on, when I would go to work at a video store where we sold videotapes, people would constantly be asking for it. We would probably sell one or two copies a week. So it was really after the fact where the film would not just become popular, but it would start to take on a cult status as people who like 
quote-unquote bad movies started to embrace it. Now I'd like to take a moment to talk to you about something I always have a problem with, which was call-in hotlines. I've talked about this on the site. I might have even mentioned it in other podcasts. But if you put a dial-in number on the screen of a television set when I was a kid and put some movie character or television character on there, there's a good chance that I would call that number just to see what would happen. Much to the chagrin of my mother, Mac and me actually had a hotline. Of course, there's a way to make money. Mac and me is going to try it. I can't remember if I called it, but I'm very, very sure that if it came out again now, I would definitely call it. An alien creature has accidentally landed on Earth. He's lost, frightened, and he needs a friend, somebody just like you. His name is Mac, and you can call him at 1-900-9094-MAC. Be his friend and share his adventures. And if you call Mac now, he'll send you his poster for free. Ask your parents before you call. $2 first minute, 45 cents each additional minute. Mac and me, coming March 30th to your favorite video store. Call Mac now, 1-900-9094-MAC. He's waiting. People will deride Mac and me, but that's okay. It gives fodder to a lot of very talented, funny people who are very good at making fun of it. Recently, it was featured in the 12th season of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Mac and Me ends with a we'll be back moment, that there's going to be a sequel. Of course, because the film didn't do very well, there wasn't one. People point to that as a good reason to say Mac and Me is bad. But if you tear away the product placement if you take away the sometimes mediocre special effects, you have a fairly lighthearted, fun film that was engaging to many people who grew up in the late 80s. And although it didn't make money, the idea of a film that gives back, that engages with a company to try to make money for a charity, might not be such a bad idea. And the fact that it failed, I don't know what to do with that. All I can say is, it's not as terrible as everybody says it is. It's not going to win any awards. But if you want a lighthearted film set in the 80s, you want to see some fun product placement, or you want to hear some people who are very talented riff on a film, why not check it out? I think if you give it a chance, if you try to look at it with new eyes, you might enjoy it. At the very least, you'll have a good laugh. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at www.retroist.com. And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you have musical needs, you can email Peachy at peachy at retroist.com. The podcast is now available on, I think, every major service that has podcasts. So if you have an Android phone or Spotify, you can get the Retroist there. If you know of one that I haven't thought of, feel free to send it to me. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you again for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. People who rate this film the worst film in history, I don't know if they've watched a lot of films, or maybe they have. I don't know. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.